What would I do if I was in that situation? I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that question. What would I do in that situation? I remember a few years ago I was talking to someone who, who used to be in the army. He was a, a soldier at one time. And I was asking him, what's it like to be in a combat situation for the very first time? I mean, how do people react? And I think what he said was, actually it's very difficult to predict how people are going to react when they get into that situation for the first time. I mean, for some of them, their training goes completely out of the window and they go completely gung-ho. Uh, for others, sometimes the, the last that you might expect, they're terrified, they're rooted to the spot, they can't move. Uh, whereas for others, their, their training kicks in and, and even though they're frightened, they're able to, to move forward and do their job. And I thought to myself, well, what would I do in that situation? Would I do my duty? Would I do the courageous thing? Or would I have been the one cowering in the corner? I guess if you're like me, in, in your minds we like to imagine that we do the courageous thing. Um, do you ever find yourself running through these crisis situations in your imagination and imagining what you would do in that situation? I really hope it's not just me, because that would just be embarrassing. But of course, in my head, I'm always the hero, right? I always do the right thing. I always act bravely. I always say the, the right and the sage and the wise words. Uh, unfortunately, my behavior in the real world is, a, is normally a lot more pathetically unheroic than the way I imagined it. In this passage in Mark's Gospel, we've reached the crisis point. The crisis point has arrived, the point that the whole of Mark's gospel has been building up to. It's like one of those, those films where you know it's all just building up to this final confrontation, this final battle scene. And now it begins. See, Jesus, in our passage, is arrested. In the following chapters, he's going to be tried. He's going to be condemned And he's going to be crucified on a Roman cross. See, the crisis of the cross has arrived for Jesus and his disciples. And in this passage, we see how they each respond. And we're going to see that the self-confident disciples abandon their Lord. And we're going to see that the terrified son submits to the will of his father. But before we get to that, did you notice, as Mark was reading through that passage, just how much of what happens here is predicted by Jesus? I mean, at the start in verse 27, Jesus tells them, you will all fall away. Then we get to the end of the passage, verse 50, and that's exactly what happens. All of his disciples abandon him. Jesus tells Peter that, that he's going to deny him three times. And it's not in our passage, but we know that later on, at the end of the chapter, that's exactly what happens. In, in last week's passage, remember we saw Jesus at the Last Supper telling his disciples that the one of you, one of the twelve, is going to betray me. And here in, in verse 47, we have Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, betraying Jesus with a kiss. And even when Judas and the mob arrive at Gethsemane, Jesus isn't taken by surprise. In fact, he's already announced their arrival before they're even there. Look at verse 41. 
enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And then Jesus appears. See, Jesus seems to know everything that's going to happen before it happens with, with an uncanny degree of accuracy. I mean, he is a bookie's nightmare. What's going on here? I think Mark is showing us that everything that's happening here is under God's control. It's under the control of God the Son, Jesus, and his Father. See, Jesus isn't betrayed and arrested because finally his luck has run out or because the opposition have managed to outflank him or because they're too strong for him. He's not taken by surprise. No, no. Jesus is betrayed, arrested, and sent to the cross because God has planned it that way. Jesus allows himself to be arrested. Now, why might Mark's readers need to know that? Well, because otherwise we might naturally think that the cross was some kind of disaster that was outside of God's control. I mean, after all, dying on a cross is not a a glorious, kingly thing to happen at all. being, Being a long way removed as we are from the first century, we don't have the same kind of familiarity with crucifixion. But to Mark's first readers, being crucified on a cross was unspeakably shameful. I mean, you didn't talk about crucifixion in polite conversation. I mean, how could God's supposed king die on a cross something must have gone very very wrong but no the cross and the events leading up to it were all under God's control it was his plan and it wasn't just his his latest plan having been forced into a corner by the opposition no this was plan a from before the world was even made God had been, and God had been telling his people that this would happen for, for hundreds of years. That prophecy that Jesus refers to in verse 27, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That was written by Zechariah 500 years before this event. See, the, the shocking thing about the cross is not that Jesus is crucified. See, the shocking thing is it's God who strikes the shepherd. Yes, the people involved in betraying and, and crucifying Jesus did evil things for which they are morally responsible. But ultimately, it is God, the Father, who strikes the Son. See, the cross, weak and shameful though it was, was how God was going to deal with our sinful rebellion against him. As we saw a few Sundays ago, the king must die. And more than that, Mark's readers would need to know that the cross is not only God's chosen way of redeeming sinners, the cross is also the pattern for our lives as disciples. Remember what we saw a few weeks ago, back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says... Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. See, all disciples are called to follow that same path of self-denial and self-sacrifice that Jesus walked. That path that seems so weak and so lacking in glory, but is actually the, the royal path that all of the king's disciples are called to walk. Now imagine that the most of us here tonight who are Christians accept the fact that the cross was God's will for Jesus and, and rejoice in that fact. But that the way of the cross is also the pattern for our lives, well, that we're less fussed about. Oh, we're happy about the bit where the Son of God sacrifices himself and goes to the, the shameful and non-glorious cross for us. Uh, but we're less happy about the bit where, where we take up our cross and follow in the same non-glorious, self-sacrificial path. But that's what all followers of Jesus are called to. And the question for the first disciples at, at this point of crisis is will they deny themselves and follow their Lord? Well, actually we see that the self-confident disciples abandon their Lord. Uh, In verse 27, Jesus tells his disciples something that must have cut them to the heart. He says to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You might have thought by now that the disciples would have learned to, to listen to Jesus and believe what he tells them, but they beg to differ. Peter says, even if all fall away, I will not. You've got to love Peter, haven't you? I mean, talk about how to win friends and influence people. He must have been really popular with the other disciples. Okay, Jesus, even if all these other lightweights fall away, okay, they might fall away, but not me. See, I'm different. I will never fall away. Peter thinks he's the exception. Uh, But Jesus has some bad news for Peter. He is exceptional, but only in the sense that he's the one who is going to fail Jesus most spectacularly. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the clock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter's having none of this. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples, they say the same thing. They back themselves to do the courageous thing when the moment of crisis arrives. They're confident in their loyalty to to their master. But it pretty quickly becomes clear that their confidence is misplaced. When they enter Gethsemane, Jesus gives Peter, James, and John a, a task for them to perform. And what is this great and heroic task that they must perform? Well, it's, it's simply to stay awake for an hour and, and watch and pray with Jesus. But they can't even do that. I mean, Peter, who, who has just been telling Jesus that he will go to the ultimate lengths for him, he, he falls asleep. And James and John, you remember James and John back in chapter 10? 
boldly claiming that they would be able to go through the same crisis that Jesus is about to go through. But they fall asleep too. In fact, three times Peter, James, and John fall asleep. And they're speechless when Jesus catches them snoozing. Look there at verse 40. They did not know what to say to him. And did you notice how how Jesus refers to Peter, how he addresses Peter in verse 37? Simon, Simon. Now, see, Simon was Peter's original name. Uh, Jesus had given him a new name, given him the nickname of Peter, Rock. But Jesus' use of his old name here is, it uncomfortably highlights that there's, there's really nothing that's rock-like about Peter. See, I don't think there's any doubt that the disciples have the intention to stick by their Lord, and they certainly have the confidence that they're going to. But crucially, they lack the strength to do it. As Jesus says there in verse 38, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And all of this bodes well for their prospects of sticking by Jesus when the real crisis comes. Uh, And ultimately, that proves to be the case. When the mob comes to arrest Jesus, they all abandon him and flee, just as Jesus had said. See, the self-confidence of the disciples is shown to be horribly naive. At the moment of crisis, they they utterly fail their master. And their, their cowardice and shame is embarrassingly exposed for all to see, just like the nakedness of the the young man who flees in verse 52. Now to get to the bottom of what's going on here, we need to zoom in and look at at what it is that finally causes the disciples to abandon their Lord. And it seems to be that what causes them to finally abandon him is, is because Jesus doesn't lead an armed fight back against the mob. But, but he willingly allows himself to be arrested. Can you see there in, in verse 47, there seems to be a kind of initial attempt by the disciples to fight off the mob, to resist arrest. In fact, John's gospel tells us that it's, it's Peter who, who cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. But Jesus doesn't fight. He doesn't resist. He doesn't even try to escape. He allows himself to be arrested, saying, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And it's at that point, when it becomes clear that he's not going to put up a fight, that the disciples abandon him. But why? Well, well, all through Mark's gospel, we've, we've seen that the disciples have been unable to accept Jesus' words that he will have to go and die on a cross. See, they wanted a king to lead them to to glorious victory over their their political opponents. Not one who goes to a a weak and a shameful death on a cross. I mean, what kind of king is that? That is not on their agenda at all. When Jesus predicts it in verse 27 that they will all fall away, that word that's translated fall away, it, it has connotations of, of to stumble over something 
or to be offended by something. See, to the disciples, this, this path of willingly going to death, this path of self-sacrifice, is something they just can't get past. It's a stumbling block for them. And the shame of the cross is an offense against their desire for glory on, the, on this world's terms. So remember in chapter 8, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. But when it comes to the moment of crisis, the disciples deny not themselves, but they deny their Lord. When it comes to the crunch, they don't take up their cross and follow him, but they leg it in the opposite direction. The self-confident disciples abandon their Lord. Now, let me ask you this question. If you're a Christian here tonight, what is the fundamental temptation that you and I face as a follower of Jesus? When Jesus tells Peter there in verse 38 to, to watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation, what is that temptation that he's speaking of? Well, is it not this? Is it not the temptation to disassociate ourselves from Jesus and his costly path of cross-shaped self-sacrifice for the sake of his kingdom and instead to take the comfortable path of the glory that this world offers. See, that's actually the temptation that we face every day. And we probably won't, like the disciples, face an armed mob wanting to arrest us for our faith. Although actually, for many of our brothers and sisters in other countries, that is exactly what they face. For us, it will be the choice between whether we speak up and identify ourselves with Jesus, potentially losing the respect and the good opinion of our friends and our colleagues, or whether we deny him by our silence. For us, it will be the choice between giving up wealth and comfort and leisure for the sake of Jesus and the gospel, or denying him by seeking to live our, quotes best life now. And there's a, there's a reasonable chance that before too long, the way things are going in our country, it may be the choice between remaining faithful to God and keeping our jobs. And I know that, like the disciples, many of us have a, a desire to serve God and to follow Christ as, as faithful disciples. But what this passage reminds us of is our own weakness when it comes to actually following that way of the cross. And so what Jesus says to Peter in this passage, he says to us, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. See, our our prayer life is a pretty reliable indicator of how much confidence we place in ourselves to do the right thing. If we're spending very little time praying to God for, for his help and his strength, that may mean that like Peter we have an overinflated view of our own strength, our own ability to do the right thing at the moment of crisis. 
And we need to acknowledge our, our own innate weakness and seek the help of the one who is truly strong. So pray that God would reveal to you your personal pinch points, whether the temptation to abandon the path of the cross is most strong for you. And pray every day that God would give you strength through his spirit to deny yourself when, when faced with that temptation. And pray for your brothers and sisters in your life group that God would strengthen them because it, it's only when we as a body are leading cross-shaped lives that we will have a significant gospel impact on our community. And if you're here tonight and if you're brutally honest with yourself, you, you know that your life outside these four walls on a Sunday has actually been one of denying him. I think, can I say, come to Jesus, come to the great shepherd and ask him to help you follow him. Because even when his sheep fail him, he doesn't give up on them. Did you notice the, the, the wonderful follow-on from, from verse 27? In verse 27, Jesus says, you will all fall away. Now, now, what would you have said if you were Jesus after that? I think if I was Jesus, it would go something along the lines of, you will all fall away, and when you do, I never want to see your faces again, you miserable cowards. But he doesn't say that. Look at verse 28. But after I have risen... I will go ahead of you into Galilee. See, knowing that they will abandon him, he says that they will not, he will not abandon them. See, that language of, of going ahead is supposed to, uh, supposed to point us and remind us of what shepherds did in, in that culture. Because in that culture, shepherds didn't drive their flocks from behind. They led them from in front. You see, the sheep will abandon the shepherd, but the shepherd will not abandon the sheep. The shepherd that is struck will rise again and will gather the flock to him. So the disciples, well, they utterly fail when confronted with the crisis of the cross. But what about Jesus? How does he respond at the moment of crisis. Well, we see that the terrified son submits to his father's will. In verse 32, Jesus takes his disciples into, into Gethsemane, which is a garden at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. And he takes Peter, James, and John with him to pray. And then we see something that, that we've not seen before in Mark's gospel. We see Jesus in distress. In verse 33, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. It's something of a mystery, isn't it? The, how the mind and the body are linked together. I don't know if you've ever been so stressed about something, so fearful about something, that it's actually shown itself physically. Perhaps you've started to shake. Perhaps you've, you've felt that tightness across your chest. Well, have you ever been so stressed or sorrowful about something that you thought that the stress itself was going to kill you? 
Well, here, as, as the crisis of his crucifixion draws near and Jesus stares it in the face, it causes him such distress that he thinks he might die there and then. Look at verse 34. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. See, Jesus looks forward to, to the execution on a Roman cross that is coming his way, and he's terrified. See, Jesus, as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, is no ordinary man. We saw earlier, didn't we, that Jesus is, is fully control, in control of everything that happens here because he's God. But what we see here in his agony in Gethsemane is that Jesus is not only fully God, He's also fully man. And being fully human, he feels distress and he feels fear as we do. But why does he have such an extreme reaction? I mean, granted, death on a a Roman cross is probably the worst way to die. Certainly the, the worst form of execution that's ever been invented. But other human beings in the history of our world have faced their own execution with courage and with dignity. Why couldn't Jesus? Many of you will know about Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, burnt for their faith up in Oxford back in the 16th century. And you'll know those famous words that Latimer says to Ridley leading up to the event. Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Why couldn't Jesus face his own death with similar courage? Why couldn't he play the man? Well, the only explanation is that there will be more to Jesus' death than the physical suffering of crucifixion. You see, what's troubling Jesus is not primarily the suffering of the cross, horrendous though that will be. No, no, it's, it's the cup that he will have to drink there. Did you see in verse 36, Jesus prays, take this cup from me. Well, what does that mean? What is this cup? Well, this picture of the cup is used in the Old Testament as a picture of the wrath that God has prepared for his enemies. It's an awful foaming cup of judgment that those who have rebelled against God, sinners like me and like you, stand to drink. It's a cup of pure, righteous anger because of our sin. And Jesus knows that when he goes to the cross, he goes there to drink that cup that we deserve to drink instead of us. He knows that on the cross, he who had never committed sin will become sin for us he knows that he the innocent one who had always obeyed the father will take on himself the guilt of all our rebellion against God and he knows that as he hangs on the cross he will have that that loving gaze of his father that he is known unbroken for all eternity turned away from him and he will know only his anger and his wrath He'll be forsaken by his closest friends. That's bad enough. But far worse, he will be forsaken by his father. 
He will be the truly God-forsaken man. And that, for someone who has only ever known the Father's smile, is utterly terrifying. So Jesus falls to the ground and prays to his Father, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. If it's possible, let this hour pass from me. I don't know which moment in the Bible you would have most liked to have been a fly on the wall for. Well, I guess for every Christian, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection have to be the top two. But what would be next? I think for me it would be this, this moment in Gethsemane. Because what happens here is utterly extraordinary and critical for our hope. Because see how Jesus finishes his prayer. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. In Gethsemane, Jesus stares into the abyss, seeing the full horror of the path that the Father has chosen for him, aware of the, the utter disloyalty and failure of those who he is dying for. And yet he submits to his Father's will. He chooses to, to down the cup of wrath to its dregs for you. He denies himself and he chooses the cross. That is the astonishing extent of Jesus' love for you. See, the Bible tells us that, that all the brokenness in our world traces itself back to one man in a garden, our first forefather, Adam, saying effectively to God, not your will, God, but mine. And that's been the default setting of of, of all human hearts ever since, yours and mine included. But here we have God's loving answer to that brokenness and that rebellion when another man in a different garden says to God, not what I will, but what you will. See, there, there is only one hero in this story. There is only one who acts courageously, The disciples fail their Lord. One of them betrays him in the most sickening way possible with the kiss of friendship. The uh, the cowardly mob come and arrest him under cover of darkness. But for your sake, Jesus lovingly and courageously submits himself to the Father's will in full knowledge of the terrors that awaited him. He chose to take the cup of wrath that had your name on it and down it himself. See, Jesus is the greatest hero that the world has ever or will ever see. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior here tonight, why not come to know him tonight? See, there is no one else. There is no one else who loves you like this. Don't leave here tonight without talking to someone about how you can come to know him. If you are a follower of Jesus here tonight, they'll marvel again at such astonishing love. Stand in awe at such an astonishing saviour and give thanks to God for his astonishing son-sacrificing plan to rescue you. 
And in in the face of his self-sacrifice for us, how can we not, in response, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him? Well, we're going to sing a song now that reminds us of these events, reminds us that Jesus willingly chose the cross for us. So when the music starts, let's all stand together and sing, You Chose the Cross. <laughs>